Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. So as Stephen moves beyond Abraham, he begins to highlight God's work through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's twelve sons, which ultimately became the nation of Israel. And he tells the story of Joseph's rise to prominence in Egypt and how he saved Abraham's family from destruction of the famine. And here he makes a point that Joseph's brothers were blind to his identity when they went to Egypt looking for food. And in the same way, Israel was blind to the appearance of Jesus Christ in their midst. Then in his story, Stephen honors the God who provided for Israel, who proved himself faithful in all the events of the patriarchs' lives. It was kind of a in-your-face, how could you accuse me of blasphemy when I honor God for the way that he has birthed and preserved our nation, which I and you, the Jewish council sitting in judgment of me, are members. Stephen's focus on the patriarchs, who are the heroes of the Jewish faith, was designed to endear him to those that were listening to him. And then he moves on to answer the charges of blaspheming Moses. Uh, Just to to point out here, uh, while his accusers... When they accused him of blasphemy, accused him of blasphemy against Moses and God. (laughs) Stephen got the order correct here. He put God first and then Moses. But he had shown great respect for the God of Israel. And now he he moves on to demonstrating his profound respect for the great liberator of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now this portion of Stephen's sermon covers the time from Moses to the Babylonian captivity. Of Israel, And he outlines three periods specifically of Moses' life. Forty years of education in Egypt. Forty years of isolation in Midian. And forty years of ministry leading Israel. Starting at verse 17, we see the forty years of education. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? You might remember that when a new pharaoh had come to power in Egypt, he began to fear how the Hebrews had multiplied in number. And he was beginning to be afraid that there might be an an uprising or a rebellion among them against him and his people. So he made them slaves and ordered the murder of all the Hebrew babies, hoping to stop the proliferation of the Hebrew race. But the Hebrews' midwives refused his order, and the nation continued to grow. And of course you know that uh, out of all those babies that were supposed to be killed, Moses survived. He was hidden by his parents for a while, and then he was placed in that basket and put float on the river, found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the courts of Pharaoh, and received the finest education possible in, in the day. And then one day Moses came upon a Hebrew slave fighting an Egyptian. And he defended the slave and killed the Egyptian soldier. Ultimately, in fear for his life, he fled Egypt and brought his 40 years of education to a close. That led to the next 40 years, years of isolation in the desert, isolation in Midian, beginning at verse 29. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Moses' flight took him to a place called Midian, where he became a shepherd, he got married, he had two sons. And we're not told a lot about his literal and figurative desert experience, except that famous burning bush experience, where God commissioned Moses to go and deliver his Hebrew relatives from their oppression and slavery. Moses received the best education in the world in his first 40 years. And then he spent the next 40 years in isolation being groomed for God's ministry. And those last 40 years of doing God's ministry is the period that's described in detail in the Bible. Beginning of verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, just in case you've never done the math, God spent 80 years educating and preparing, grooming Moses for his life's work, which was to deliver Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants from captivity to the promised land. I hope that that would be an encourage to some of us here today to know that at 80, Moses' best work was still ahead of him. (laughs) So if you're sitting out there and you're coming up on 80, or if you're over 60 or over 50, realize your best work's probably still ahead of you. So buck up. (laughs) Now while Stephen stands accused of blaspheming Moses, he just does not sound to me like he's blaspheming Moses. He knew Moses' story frontwards and backwards. And he presented Moses as the ultimate hero of Israel that he actually was. And because of his respect for Moses, he wanted the Sanhedrin to see that it was Moses who predicted the coming of the Messiah in Israel. Verse 37, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, Him you shall hear. And notice that in the New King James, which I put up there for you, that prophet is capitalized. That means they were speaking of Jesus, not just one of the other prophets. The council shouldn't have been upset with Stephen for preaching about Christ, since Moses, the hero of Israel, also acknowledged that he was coming. Having established his respect now for Moses, Stephen moves on to answer the charges of blasphemy against the law. And here, Stephen turns the tables on the council by showing that it was their own ancestors who blasphemed the law by disobeying it, not him. Verse 38 says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke at him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of the heaven, as it was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Moses hadn't even come down from Mount Sinai with the law before the Israelites had fashioned a golden calf to worship. Their rejection of God's law ultimately led to the destruction of Israel by Assyria and exile in Babylon. And Stephen then pointed out how one of Israel's own great prophets condemned the Jewish leader's ancestors for blasphemy against the law. And I'm sure that increased the tension in the room. Now he's saying it's not me who blasphemed the law, it's your ancestors. He wrapped up 
his recitation of Jewish history then by quoting from Amos chapter 5, which details Israel's great idolatry and their disrespect for God's law. Amos 25, verses 25 to 27. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And now he wrapped that section up. And he moves on to the charges of blasphemy against the temple and of Judaism. Beginning in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In this last section of his response, Stephen takes on the charge that he blasphemed the temple And he demonstrates a a complete knowledge of the temple's history by starting with the tabernacle and the history of the tabernacle, which was the forerunner of the temple while they were in the wilderness. And then he moved to the temple itself, that it was built by Solomon as a dwelling for God in Jerusalem. And then he made a very important point. God does not dwell in a temple made by men. Now, before the Sanhedrin could explode, (laughs) he quoted from Isaiah, Israel's greatest prophet. In Isaiah 66, 1, he says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The Sanhedrin revered the temple because they believed it to be the sole dwelling place of God. But Stephen praised the greatness of God by proving that God is bigger than a temple, bigger than anything man could build. And Stephen's statement was consistent with one Jesus made to the woman at the well in John 4. There Jesus pointed out that Samaritans and Jews like to say it was appropriate to worship God in one place or another. But God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth. The temple was a centralized place to offer worship to God, and he did meet with Israel there. But he was not confined to that place or any other. So now that Stephen has defended himself against the charges that they've made against him, he has a few charges himself to make. Up to this point, he hadn't accused the members of the Sanhedrin of anything. He had only done his survey of the history of Israel and demonstrated his utmost respect for the traditions of Israel in the form of God, Moses, the law, and the temple. But then he turned to the Sanhedrin, and to use a more contemporary phrase, he stopped preaching and went to meddling. 
He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. (laughs) Stephen starts off by saying they're stiff-necked. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where stiff-necked is used as a descriptor. And it comes from Stephen, meaning they're obstinate, they're stubborn, are rebellious. And the Jews would recognize that particular descriptor from places like Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know where those words came from. And then verse thir- or Exodus 33, verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. You ever been called stiff-necked? <laughs> it's not usually said in a, in a pleasant way. It means you're stubborn. Stephen is now comparing the Sanhedrin to those rebellious Jews of old. And intentionally or not, he places himself then in the place of Moses, chastising them for their rebellion. If anyone has blasphemed God, Moses, or the law, or the temple, he says, it's you, the Sanhedrin. And they hadn't done, done that by rejecting the one to whom, or they had done it by rejecting the one to whom all of the Old Testament institutions pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Stephen also referred to them as uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now in Genesis 17, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and uh, of Abraham's descendants. And this is what set Israel apart from her pagan neighbors. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, it, circumcision takes on a, a more spiritual significance. When Moses told Israel to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. To have been physically circumcised, but to have never undergone that that spiritual circumcision made the, the Jewish elders as unspiritual toward God as the pagans around them. And clearly, <laughs> Stephen was not exercising Dale Carnegie's uh, winning friends and influencing people principles here. It was almost like he knew that his hours were numbered. And he wanted to set the record straight before he checked out. Thirdly, Stephen said that they resisted the Holy Spirit. He kept on comparing the Sanhedrin to the Jewish elders of old who had stirred God's displeasure by telling him in verse 51 that they always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He continued the comparison in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, Stephen wasn't suggesting that he was a prophet, but he was pointing to Christ, 
the prophet God told Moses would come. And by killing that prophet, Christ, the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day were resisting the work of God just as their ancestors had done by persecuting the prophets. And then fourthly, Stephen accused them of having killed the just one, or it may say in your translation, the righteous one. Verses 52 and 53. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The Old Testament Jewish leaders had persecuted the prophets who foretold the coming of the just one, and the current leaders of Jerusalem had killed the just one himself. And Stephen's words were not lost in misunderstanding. They knew exactly the connection that he was making. And they proved it with their actions when he finished speaking. But he wasn't quite done yet. His final charge against the Jewish leaders was that they did not keep the law. They who received the law from God had failed to keep it. This group who, who prided themselves in meticulously keeping the law. For example, tithing their herbs. We looked at that in Matthew twenty three twenty three a couple of weeks ago in the, in the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. If they had kept the law, they would not have murdered the one that the law foretold. Let me quickly summarize Stephen's defense here against this charges of blasphemy. They accused Stephen of disrespecting the holy place. He accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit. They accused him of slighting Moses, the man of God, and he accused them of slaying Jesus, the Messiah of God. They accused him of blaspheming the law. He accused them of breaking the law. And Stephen's fate was sealed. There were changes in Israel that Stephen was trying to highlight. In his sermon, besides a historical review of God's work, Stephen was highlighting things that were different than the way that the Sanhedrin understood them. And this is the same thing that Jesus did back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. And he used an illustration of wine and wineskin. He said, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. Things are different now that Jesus had come. But the Jewish elders were blind to what God was doing. They were all wrapped up in their religion and did not see the object of their religion. So what? So Stephen defended himself, so what? One important point I want us to take away from today is the reality of God's presence apart from the temple. This is a key point that Stephen made, the idea that God has always worked outside the temple. And he wanted them to understand that he was doing so in their time as well. God spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God spoke to Abraham when he was in Haran. He spoke with Abraham when he didn't own a single foot of the ground in the promised land. 
God was with the Israelites when they were in bondage, bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. God was with Joseph when he was sold into slavery into Egypt. God was with Moses when he was in Pharaoh's house. God was with Moses when he was exiled to Midian. He was with his people Israel in the wilderness where they, when they had the tabernacle. God was with his people when Solomon built his magnificent temple. God was with his people when Zerubbabel had built his temple. God was with his people when Herod, a non-Jew, built the temple that existed in Stephen's day. And the point was, the Jewish leaders were trying to localize God as if they were trying to control him by keeping him confined to the temple in Jerusalem. There's a powerful message there for the church today in Stephen's words. God does not dwell in buildings made with hands, but in the temple made living stones. That's the church. That's you and me and people like us all over the world. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God meets with us here every Sunday. Does he not? But he doesn't live here. When we close the doors here in a little bit and we move on and move out, He doesn't stay here until next week. Way too many things for him to do, way too many places for him to be. But he lives in his people. Each of us who claims Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, take God with us through the Holy Spirit every time we walk anywhere. Where church goes, God goes. And he goes in the hearts of his people. The second point that I want us to look at here is the rejection of those who were sent to deliver. And I want to close with this thought. God doesn't necessarily look at those that hold positions of prominence to deliver his people. He uses those who are rejected ones. For example, Joseph was rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery. Moses was driven into exile in fear for his life and even rejected by those who he was supposed to deliver from slavery. Jesus appeared as the deliverer of Israel and was rejected. He came as a servant rejected by those he came to serve. Stephen risked his life to appeal to the Jewish leaders with the truth. To recognize God's hand at work in their midst, but they would not see it. I don't know if any of us in here have had to risk our lives yet. But it's our responsibility to also carry that same message to that world out there. All over it. And so many of us go to so many different parts of it. Some stay right here in Cambria. 
Some of you even here this morning are all over the state of California, or you may be even from outside California. I don't know that we have anybody here from another nation, but some of us go to those places as well. And everywhere his church goes, God goes through his Holy Spirit. I would pray that God would grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and to always be receptive to what he is doing in our lives and in the world. And I would also pray that he would grant us the boldness, the same boldness that Stephen had here, to speak the truth when and where we have an opportunity and a need. Stephen recognized his, his hours, maybe his minutes, were numbered. But he wanted to make sure he got this message out first. I would pray we'd have that same urgency. None of us knows how much time we have. But I would venture to say that all of us know someone who needs to hear this message. And if you don't, you'll probably run into him when you leave here today. <laughs> so let's leave here with that boldness to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And to remember that where you go, God is going to. Would you pray with me?